Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Glam City. We're bringing you history in your backyard. That's the history in Sydney around us. What's on in history world? Just a word of warning, we'll be hearing some graphic content on today's show. And today we are welcoming to the show Dr Penny Stannard. Penny is Curator of Exhibitions and Public Access for New South Wales State Archives and Records and she is a specialist at integrating creativity, research, policy and programs. Welcome, Penny. Thanks. I understand, Penny, you in fact did your PhD at the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS. What a great place to study. What was it on? So my doctorate looked at the development of arts and cultural infrastructure in metropolitan communities uh, with a particular case study on Western Sydney. So last week we learnt that metadata is much more exciting than we have been led to believe. Tell me why infrastructure matters. Infrastructure matters because you have both hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure. We need the buildings in which to be able to care for, present and store collections, items of history, and we need the infrastructure of people with the right kind of skills, knowledge and capabilities to actually work with that material to bring it to life. And so there's a whole kind of network of cultural infrastructure, both hard and soft, in Western Sydney, and it's existed for some time, and um, I decided to uh, go deep and look into the history of that. Sounds like a shout-out to the Prime Minister, actually. (laughs) Yeah, because Western Sydney often gets forgotten in the glam kind of precinct and discussions about the cultural activities that are on in Sydney. That's right. And I spent some years uh, working in Western Sydney prior to going back to uni and doing my doctorate. And I found, in many respects, some of the most exciting work in contemporary culture is happening in people's backyards in Western Sydney. And it's a place which is so different from street to street, from suburb to suburb. You never know who's doing what. And it was a matter of, over time, connecting with different people, different community groups to actually have access to this really exciting work. And in many ways, for me, it's that cultural practice and the creating of contemporary culture in Western Sydney that is really about the future of Australia from a cultural and social sense. I'm new to Sydney and whenever I hear this term Western Sydney I sort of feel a bit like people feel when they hear Africa described as a country like it's an enormous part of the city with distinct suburbs and communities and neighbourhoods. So when you say Western Sydney can you just sort of give a kind of list of the places that you're talking about? A United Nations list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah so it's a very contested term the concept of Western Sydney I can talk about it as a geographical construct. So you have the 14 or 15 local government areas which extend from, say, the Bankstown, Auburn-type suburbs right up to the Blue Mountains to Wallandilly, Campbelltown, those sort of um, areas. So it's a huge mass of land. And then you've got many, many different local government authorities operating in that region and each has their own agendas, each sort of has their own communities and their own needs and issues. So it is a a blanket term, I suppose, that is used, but it's very problematic to sort of get set on one definition, and that was part of, I guess, what I looked at. So in terms of arts policy and talking about Western Sydney and funding the arts and sort of generating cultural activity, you know, where do you start? Do you define it as a geographical construct? Do you fi- define it in terms of the, the kind of demography or the communities? It's, a, it's re- very, very challenging, but also a very exciting concept to work with. Yeah, I'm getting a sense you love Western Sydney, 
Can you uh, tell me why you love history or when that started, when you first fell in love with history? Um, well, my background, uh, my first degree was actually in visual arts. So I grew up in Sydney, went off to uh, art school in Darlinghurst for three years. And uh, I found, even though I studied studio practice, for me it was art history that really lighted up my passion. So for me, I really wanted to go back in time to look at sort of the modern story of Sydney and Western Sydney and sort of the story of Western Sydney in a modern sense is the story of the post-war era and I suppose being a child of sort of you know the 80s um, no. I was I was a teenager <laughs> in the 80s <laughs> um, it, it sort of there were things within my sort of uh, own memory that were fairly profound and Western Sydney played a big role in terms of uh, various people coming into Australia's limelight, uh, the Whitlam years and I suppose the um, the thinking that happened around Western Sydney and that part of Sydney uh, in the post-war era and some of the minds that came together. So it was sort of, I didn't start off necessarily with a passion for history but it's something I suppose that evolved from my experience in places, in communities. And how did you then roll into your current role and when did that start? So I've been at the State Archives and Records Authority since April last year, Um, so not for very long. I was looking for a role that could combine, I guess, my skills and capabilities, which are quite diverse, and looking for a role where I could really use the research skills I'd developed through doing my doctoral research and work in a way that was very much focused on engagement and working with collections, working with historical material and bringing new interpretations into that and then presenting that to communities and finding ways of engaging with communities around that. So the opportunity arose to uh, come and curate a project in relation to the First World War and set archives needed someone who could realise that project in a short period of time and... Um, I was around. You were it. (laughs) And I got the gig. (laughs) And lo, the historian was hired. What do you love about your current job? I think it's the nexus of work. So it's working with a collection, a most particular collection, which is the history of government. It's, it's, you know, the archives are represent, I suppose, or capture the story of New South Wales as told through the work of government. So that's of great interest to me. I love the idea of being able to access this what is a universe out there I go into all the different cells where all the archives are kept and who knows what you'll discover each day it is a universe of material and the potential that that presents in terms of telling stories of bringing people and communities into narratives and then presenting that uh, with them in partnership with people stakeholders for me that's the really uh, exciting and worthwhile aspect of the work Last week we had uh, Nathan Sentence, who's a Wiradjuri man and museum curator at the Australian Museum, and he was talking about, you know, the the sort of colonising influence of these archives, which hold stories about various community groups in in what relation to what he was saying in Aboriginal groups in New South Wales, for example. How do you find working with some of these? These records are created at a time, uh, at a different era from us. And how do we reinterpret them now? And how do we make sure that the silences that might be between the lines of some of those records have a chance to be heard? That's a really great question. And it was a real challenge um, to deal with that with the exhibition Captured Portraits of Crime. So just using that as an example, um, the set of records that I worked with ranged in date from about 1870 to 1930. And so the crimes that people were convicted of represent a number of eras. Crimes that people were convicted of would not be prosecuted today. They're not crimes. 
Um, so the challenge was to sort of bring a sense of humanity or empathy to a situation which is very different today. One of the hardest things for me to deal with was when I was going through thousands and thousands of records of prisoners was how many children there are. So how many children, just the number of particularly boys, the number of prepubescent boys and teenage boys incarcerated in adult prisons at a certain time was incredibly challenging for me. And the types of punishments they received was so different from today. So, um, you know, it was sort of very challenging. And how do you uh, interpret that with a, a kind of humanity, mm. um, but acknowledge that at the time, indeed, mm. they were convicted of a criminal offence. Mm. And how do you bring their stories and their voices out when it's obviously the, the records are created by a government which was trying to, in a sense, you know, silence their voice? How do you find their stories and their personalities and, as you as you say, create a sort of sense of humanity and connectedness? Yeah, so that's right. So the archives, the state archives, contain the official history or the official records of these people. So our research into these people went beyond the state archives. Where we could, we um, were able to track down some descendants of some of these people and hear the perspectives of family history. Also, where we could, we were able to find other sources that went beyond the the official histories. We also had a, a partnership with Australian Theatre for Young People and we commissioned the writer Deborah Oswald to actually engage with one of the stories, a 15-year-old boy who was convicted of murder, and to retell his story in a creative way. So what we're trying to introduce um, through this particular project is a, we're trying to set a precedent in terms of, yes, we have the official history, but it's not the only history. And there are these other personal histories or imagined histories that you know sort of create nuance to these records. So very much moving in that direction and acknowledging that that's a fact. So it, it is a, a very uh, complex kind of environment to work in. And listeners, we are talking here about the uh, Captured Portraits of Crime exhibition, that's right, isn't it, which is being held at the moment. Can you tell us where that is? And if, by the way, if you are hearing a, um, a doof, doof, doof sound, that is the uh, realities of radio people. Next door, someone is playing a guitar very loudly. <laughs> and we're kind of nodding our heads and booping mm. along with uh, talking about captured in crime portraits, <laughs> if you could see us. We'll, we'll tweet it later. But back, back to the exhibition. Where and when is it on? Okay. So Captured Portraits of Crime is presented across three platforms. So it's presented as an exhibition in Western Sydney at the State Archives and Re Records New South Wales facility, which is located in Kingswood. It's presented in a smaller version as a touring exhibition. Um, and so for the next 12 months, that will be touring around regional New South Wales. And its first stop is Broken Hill. So I sent the crates off yesterday and it opens in Broken Hill on the 3rd of October. And the third platform um, through which it exists is online um, in the form of an e-catalogue. And people can access that through the State Archives and Records website. Fantastic. And um, so the e-catalogue... When you say e-catalogue, what, what do you mean? Is that different than a website displaying all the pictures? This is where my pragmatism comes in. So what we're trying to do is we're, we're limited by our exhibition space at Kingswood. The facility at Kingswood, it was never sort of a purposely built space for exhibitions. It's quite hard to get to too, isn't it? It's quite hard to get to. So there's a number of constraints around how we can um, present and build an exhibitions program there. So where we don't have constraints is in the online environment. So what I tried to do was I suppose to kill two birds with one stone and produce a scholarly piece of work, but to have it designed and presented 
presented in a way that can function um, as an online exhibition as well. So it's the first time we've tried this kind of thing. Um, I'm really happy with the result. And it also allows us to basically double the number of case studies we explored through the exhibition. Mm. So whereas at Kingswood, we've got uh, 18 case studies presented, on the online exhibition, there's 37 case studies. This is just such an amazing exhibition to be looking at. I was going through your catalogue recently and it's so visually arresting uh, and the stories are so incredible. Like you say, you know, you're sitting on a goldmine of people's lives. What motivated this particular topic to be the sort of cornerstone of an exhibition? So what happened was in 2016, this set of records in their original form, which are bound, big, heavy bound leather volumes that were um, generated by prisons, they were declared to be at risk. So just the conditions in which they were kept over many decades prior to coming into our custodianship and the amount of use they were getting by people doing research and their fragility because of the sort of the paper and the, mm. the, the photographs, they were declared at risk and they were uh, digitised as part of a larger digitisation project. So that involved the digitisation of about 48-odd thousand pages of records and about 46,000 records of individuals. So the I guess the next step was to, well, we've digitised this material now. As the authority that has digitised this material and is the custodian of this material, how can we then work in a contemporary way with this digital material to actually bring these records to life? So it was the process of digitisation, I think, that led to a renewed interest into the people that these records um, represented. But it was something that... You know, there's 46,000 individuals. Every story is unique. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you choose... You know, how do you how do you kind of work through that? And that was a huge challenge. And I had nine months basically from start to end, so it was uh, a very intense project. (laughs) But I never imagined I'd be working with this kind of material. I must say, so I had to get my head around kind of, you know, criminology, different sorts of acts, and you know, I had to get my head around a lot of stuff in a short period of time to actually bring rigor and process Mm. into how we would make a selection of uh, case studies. And in terms of bringing the humanity. out of these records and telling the stories. Who are the peop- these people? You know, you have 46, 8,000-odd records. Who are these people? Well, what I like to say is they're ordinary people. Um, and I think that in many cases it's actually been the celebrity criminals that have been enshrined in the state's history, um, sort of legal, social and cultural history. You know, we've got television shows, we've got exhibitions about kind of, you know, theatre productions about sort of the celebrity criminals. The majority of convicted offenders are fairly ordinary people. So in essence, they're ordinary people who, for one reason or another, found themselves going through the criminal justice system and being incarcerated in a jail in New South Wales. So the birth of the record remains central to how we would approach an exhibition project like this. So the record only exists because someone was incarcerated for a crime and a photograph was taken and sort of summary information was uh, captured about them. Um, Sorry, can I ask you at this point, when is photography introduced into this legal process in New South Wales? Yes, very good question. It was introduced in 1871. So the background to that was that the then sheriff and acting inspector of prisons, a fellow called Harold McLean, was commissioned by the New South Wales government to do a study tour in the UK to look into uh, the management of the prisons there. Um, He went away. He looked at prisons in um, England, Scotland and Ireland. He came back and he had five recommendations. 
two of those recommendations were around the productivity of prisons, so prison labour and um, sort of prisons becoming more self-sufficient, so to speak. Uh, two were around forms of punishment and the fifth was a recommendation to introduce photographic portraiture to get the likeness or get mm. as much of a likeness as you could of uh, convicted criminals. The practice had actually been introduced in France about two decades earlier and it was introduced in Paris at a time when there was a, um, an act of parliament um, or there was a focus on vagabonds and vagabonds coming into the city and the police just or the authorities couldn't keep track of the kind of unknown offenders. Um, it was introduced in England first at Bristol Jail. Um, so by about 1871, some of the controversy around photographing prisoners had sort of died down and it was rolled out first at Darlinghurst Jail and then rolled out within about 12 to 18 months at some of the bigger jails like Berrimah and Goulburn. Mm. By the the end of the period of this exhibition, by 1930, it was just one in a whole suite of um, identification methods, including fingerprinting. So it was uh, controversial in many respects at the time that it was introduced in the Northern Hemisphere because photographic portraiture, you know, it was a new technology and it was really the domain of sort of the elite. So some detractors felt that if it was used on sort of the criminal classes, then that would somehow have an impact upon the um, status of the elite. There were also detractors who felt that having a permanent portrait of someone's face uh, sort of in perpetuity would extend beyond any kind of um, period of punishment and the sort of the ethics around that. But it was very much embraced in New South Wales. New South Wales was the first in Australia mm. uh, to introduce this practice. It's like a pre-digital, it's like, you know, the fear of the digital concern, our digital footprint echoing. It's well, it's interesting to think about in the context of the state, isn't yeah. it? Like here is another way that you are captured. Yeah. Um, and that's reflected in the title of your exhibition. Yeah. Here the state is is knowing and controlling your image in a way that, and that's the anxiety around mm. the present. I don't, don't think those are displaced, mm. I mean, you know, misplaced anxieties. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't seen these pictures. You clearly have. And But in some of the other the historic images of of, of uh, criminals um, or people charged with crime that that I've seen, the the subjects are really looking back at the camera, um, and we return then to Anna's question about who are these people, and you're saying they're very ordinary. What are what are their stories, and how are they engaging with this? new technology? I can tell you some, some of their individual stories, if you like. Please. So what I might do is start with a fellow called Napoleon Lisson. So Napoleon Lisson um, had a very unique name, as you can tell, and he was a fellow who was a gentleman. He was a man who um, was a successful businessman. He had a family. In 1898, he was convicted of murder and he was sentenced to death. So his story was he was a 31-year-old tobacconist. He um, was photographed at Darlinghurst Jail on the day he was um, sentenced to death. Um, and he was found guilty of the killing of his wife's 16-year-old sister, Lily Gorick. And the actual crime happened here on George Street, probably quite close to where we are um, here in Haymarket. He operated a couple of businesses from uh, 775 George Street. Um, he had a meeting that day with one of his associates who owed him money. They got into an argument. Uh, Napoleon um, sort of threatened him, pulled out a revolver and said, I'm going to shoot you. And anyway, this fellow, Henry Morden, ran downstairs and sort of raised the alarm that Lisson had uh, become violent. Uh, Lisson chased him downstairs out into the backyard where he encountered his wife's 16-year-old sister who tried to run away. Um, before she had the chance, he shot her twice in the neck. So it's very gruesome and very tragic. 
What then happened was a policeman turned up on the scene and the business tenants of the building had run outside and they'd said, you know, some, you know, things are really bad, you know, our boss, our bosses, you know, something's gone horribly wrong. The policeman then confronted Lisson, who said, no, no, there's nothing wrong. He then ran upstairs and sought out his two young young sons, um, his son Victor, age nine, and his son Roland, age seven, and he pulled them out from under a table where they were hiding and he bludgeoned them with a hammer. They were very um, severely injured and it wasn't known whether or not the younger boy would survive, uh, such were his injuries. And at the time when the police uh, apprehended Lisson, he said to the sergeant who had made the arrest, are both boys dead? I knew I would be hanged and it is better if both of them are dead. So he was tried at Central Criminal Court between the 4th and 7th of October 1898 and the question of his sanity arose. Mm. Um, so the jury had uh, were asked to consider three questions. Did Lisson kill Lily Gorick? If so, did he know what he was doing at the time? And did he know it to be wrong? So the jury found him guilty, but they believed that he was temporarily insane um, when he committed the crime. Insane is a term that we wouldn't necessarily use today, but it was a term that was used at the, at the time. So on this basis, the jury asked that Listen be shown mercy and that his death sentence be commuted to life. Then the, um, the judge, Justice Owen, asked whether Listen had anything to say, and Listen's response was very rambling, um, but what he did state was that he objected to the jury's recommendation for mercy. Um, And this is where it gets really compelling. Uh, Reports of the case say that Justice Owen, as he was handing down the death sentence, completely broke down and wept because it was clear to all that Listen was insane. So Listen was sent to Darlinghurst Jail and placed in the condemned prisoner's cell. And one of the uh, records that uh, we do have in our collection is a record of um, condemned prisoners at Darlinghurst Jail. And that details who came to visit them each day, oh, sort wow. of over a period of um, weeks. So his wife actually came to visit him every, every single day, along with a surgeon and a clergyman. His sentence was commuted to penal servitude for life and he was transferred to Goulburn Jail. Fourteen years later, after the events, his younger son, who had received the more serious injuries, died from those injuries. What then happened about 17 or so years after the crime was committed was that Napoleon Lisson was discharged from Goulburn Jail on special licence. So that could be given to a prisoner um, by the governor, depending upon what sort of threat they um, presented to the community. But the first his family knew about it was his reappearance outside his father-in-law's house. And they were very shocked because they didn't know he'd been let out of prison. So it was a, a pretty tragic situation. The man was a gentleman. He was known to love his family and to care for his family. Something obviously went cataclysmically wrong. I don't really know why. But he did go on to live till, till he was 93. And he didn't reappear in um, any of our jail records. And we were very lucky to trace also down his great-granddaughter. Mm. Um, and she was able to come to the exhibition. So she uh, knew about the story, but it had only come to light based on her own generation's research. So... Mm. It had sort of never been mentioned by her grandparents or her father. So it was a a great surprise to uh, find out about this fellow. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Glam City. That's all one word. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. Penny, I want to ask you a question about why 
crime and true crime, you think, has become so popular. I mean, it is a way of engaging with some of these stories uh, from the past, um, but it's not quite what you're doing, is it? No, um, that's a very interesting question. And in fact, as the um, exhibition project was really gearing up, probably about a month ago, I was at the hairdressers and I was telling him about what I was, my hairdresser, about what I was doing. And he said, he said, Penny, I'll come to that. I love true crime. (laughs) I find it really engaging. And then people have, you know, when I sort of talk about it, um, they say, oh, I love true crime. I watch true crime on, you know, shows on TV, all that kind of thing. I don't know the answer to your question. I certainly never imagined myself delving into this kind of material. But for me, I always come back to the fact that these are people who, in, in many respects, are just so ordinary and something happens and they find themselves in a situation that no one wants to be in. Their stories are compelling. I mean, there are victims. You know, there's sort of the they're, they're forgotten stories. You know, the, the perpetrator's stories are sort of forgotten, but the victim's stories are forgotten as well. Mm. Um, you know, it's, yeah, There are no archives on their lives really, are there? Well, there are. So with our research, we're able to, um, you know, there's court transcripts, there's depositions, there's uh, sort of statements made as someone's dying. Um, But they don't have a curated kind of life story that goes through perhaps institutions like perpetrators, some perpetrators might. That's right, yeah. So uh, what a lot of the perpetrators, I think from through today's lens, we would define them as being victims Mm. in some respects um, as well. So for me, I mean, I looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of these. There are very few, I think, that you could sort of just say, oh, they're an evil person. You know, there's a whole kind of context around them, circumstances and choice. You know, it's it's a complex uh, situation. So I don't know the answer to why it's popular, but I think that the stories are compelling and, you know, they're ordinary people like us in many ways. The visual records themselves are just so sort of stunning is the wrong word in this context, but they are incredibly mesmerising. Can you talk about the process of sifting through these photos? You feel like, it almost feels like an art exhibition, the portraits. They're incredibly... Um, yeah. They're compelling. Mm. And um, for me, again, it was coming back to this particular set of records, which are a combination of photographic image and information. And together, those elements hint at a story. So without the image, the story isn't yeah. as compelling. The image adds this sort of emotive level to the situation. And I think that in terms of making the selection, what I did was there was just so much data to deal with. I had to sort of delegate out to people. And so I got 17 different archivists to basically look at probably about each 500 records. And what was really interesting out of that process was I set them with the task of how they responded to the combination of image and information. So what did this sort of emotive, what was their emotive response to the visual and the textual? And why did they respond sort of in an emotive way? So for me, it was the young boys. I found that really hard. Um, for others, it was uh, victims of, say, sexual sexual assault. But what I did find was that 17 different individuals and then myself, based on our own sort of experiences and backgrounds, we all responded quite differently. Mm. So I think what we get out of it in the end is a, a sort of a good a diversity, mm. a good cross-section of cases. One of the other really interesting things about this project is that there were a number of offenders who had long criminal histories. So we've got multiple photos of them. Mm. And so it's a really amazing to look at their history as shown in their photographic portrait. I was um, I had, had a chance to look at some of the records of uh, the French Empire in Algeria. 
and they're at around about the same time. And there's some of those Algerian subjects are deliberately moving in front of the camera in order to resist the picture being taken of them. Are, are there instances in this enormous number of photographs of, of the subjects of these photographers kind of speaking back to the camera? Yes, um, and it was fact, uh, in fact in the guidelines that we introduced to the jails around taking photographs, that was a particular issue. So there were sort of punitive measures for people who did resist. Some of the photographs that I've looked at, you actually you do see movement. There's one particular one that was quite tough to look at. Um, it's a man who his convictions were, you know, vagrancy, drunkenness, that kind of thing. And the photo of him, his head's kind of shaking, or you can see it shaking, and there's the policeman behind him holding his head. So you, you do see that. Um, there's another very affecting one of a woman in the exhibition, Margaret Higgins, and the photograph t- taken of her is on the day her death sentence was commuted to life. And you look at that photograph and there are tears in her eyes. They're not all sort of static. And what you do see over the 60 years that this material spans is you see the conventions of portraiture changing. So the very early ones are very formal, sort of three-quarter view, sort of from the belly button up. By the time you get into the 20s, people are much more casual about having their photo taken. And you get these um, women and men of the 1920s who have attitude um, uh, and are very kind of cool about the whole situation and, in fact, posing for the camera. So that, that's been an interesting process mm. to see how how comfortable um, people are or they become used to being photographed a bit more. Time for Glam Slam. Penny, what is coming up in your diary? What should we be uh, checking out? Where will we find you? Well, you will find me in November at Parliament House on Macquarie Street. That is the last stop of our Windows into Wartime Touring Exhibition and that opens at Parliament House on the 27th of November. So Windows into Wartime tells the story of the efforts being made by communities on the home front in support of the war effort and the Images in that exhibition are sourced from a wonderful collection of glass plate negatives taken by our government photographers at the time. So I'll be there uh, installing the show or overseeing the install for that. I'll also be uh, heading at uh, at the end of the year to Maitland Jail. Uh, Maitland Jail is one of our regional partners and they will be presenting uh, their touring exhibition of Captured. And they've got a whole program rolling out about an anniversary of the decommissioning of Maitland Jail. So I'll be uh, around there at the end of the year as well. And Anna Clark. I'm going to be keeping in the theme of uh, the justice system, but involuntarily. Really? I You're am... going to be incarcerated yourself? I'm on jury duty. Why? Yeah, so I'm going to be heading down to the Downing Centre Court to see what's in store for me as a member of the community. But I'm going to do it now with a historical lens, which I wasn't thinking of using before. Well, they put you probably won't be allowed to take your camera. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. Uh, This pod is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with wonderful support from 2SER. Don't forget to check us out on iTunes and please leave us a review. That's us for another episode. Thank you very much, Penny. Thank you. Glam out. Glam out.